0: This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends, and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the HSBC Global Research Macro Viewpoint, a roundup of our key reports published over the last week our team of economists
1: and strategists. Coming up today, we discuss the shifting growth drivers that will power China's economy in the years ahead. We find out why oil
0: prices look set to stay high over the longer term and examine some surprising developments in
1: bond market yield curves. This podcast is recorded on Thursday the 11th of November 2021. Our full disclosures and disclaimers can be found in the link attached to the podcast. Hello, I'm Piers Butler. And I'm Chris brown Humes. We kick things off in Asia, where our economics team predicts that China's economy is set to undergo a significant transition. Let's get the details now from Xuanbin, bin, our chief China economist. Hongbin, thanks for joining us today. Many thanks, Chris. A uh, Pleasure to be here. So Hongbin, the starting point for your piece is that the decades-long boom in real estate and infrastructure is coming to an end in China. Why do you feel that?
2: Firstly, if you look at the home ownership, which has already reached over 80% across all the cities in China, which is one of the highest in the world. Then more importantly, uh, more than 40% of the household uh, now owns more than two apartments. So the home ownership has really reached kind of limits. And secondly, if you look at basically the housing per capita, it has more than doubled over the last decade now in terms of the level is one of the highest among all the Asia countries and also in terms of the demographics you know younger generation is shrinking so i'll suggest that this kind of the double-digit growth in the china's construction investment has already come to the end
1: and if that is the case what is going to pick up the slack
2: there are three new growth drivers is likely to help to pick up the slack firstly is the uh, capex in the manufacturing sector, particularly the the medium to high kind of tech manufacturing. Uh, In fact, we already see kind of the, you know, credit growth uh, for the manufacturing sector has been uh, accelerating uh, in the recent quarters. At the same time, we also see the skillful labor Uh, You know, the supply has been increased quite rapidly. And also we see the, you know, Beijing now giving a big push in terms of technology development. So that's all points to basically uh, acceleration in the capex in the manufacturing sector. The second new growth driver is going to be green investment. There is some estimate that in the next 30 years, China need to invest more than 200 trillion of the RMBs uh, into the new clean energy as well as other sectors in order to to reach the climate goals in the near term they need to basically increase the green investment as percent GDP to over five percent uh, in the coming years. so that is also going to be a major boost to the
1: investment demand in China. And the third thing that you highlight is the importance of consumption.
2: Yes, there has been a lot of talks about the rebalancing away from investment towards consumption in China in the past. But so far, consumption is still relatively uh, steady. But in you know, going forward, one of the new force which is going to push uh, the consumption growth is the expansion of the middle classes. We already see that you know the skillful labor has been growing quite rapidly. Uh, and at the same time, structural reforms try to give the to 300 million migrant workers uh, equal opportunities that will also help to expand the middle classes. Uh, that, in my view, is going to give more support to the consumption going forward.
1: And what then is this going to mean for overall Chinese growth and employment?
2: In terms of GDP growth rate, of course, growth is going to slow a bit. But as you given all this kind of new three new growth driver, we expect China's GDP growth rate is continue to remain uh, around 6% uh, in the next kind of three to five years. Uh, that, in my view, is going to give them needed kind of support for the kind of job growth in China as well.
1: It all sounds Fairly optimistic given the demographic challenges that you mentioned earlier that China is facing. What are the risks to the view?
2: Yes, of course, you know, as you said, demographic, they're in a shrinking, you know, labor force. Uh, is a new challenge. However, at the same time, we we'll also see basically the quality of labor. In other words, the education has been improving. So that helps to offset some of those kind of headwinds. Uh, and also, at the same time, China is also facing the, some kind of external challenges. And uh, the most market, particularly the, you know, the expanding middle class, Uh, in my view, as some kind of things which can help China to cope with these new challenges.
1: Hongbin, that's a very helpful summary indeed. Thank you very much for your time.
2: My pleasure.
0: Rising energy prices have been hitting the headlines in recent months. Brent crude oil prices traded in a range for most of the year, but then rose sharply in September. So how does this affect our thinking about the longer term outlook? Gordon Gray is our global head of oil and gas equity research. Gordon, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks very much.
0: So firstly, Gordon, bring us up to date in terms of the latest developments uh, on the oil price.
3: The oil price was in a fairly narrow range for much of the year uh, until September, and then it spiked sharply upwards into the mid 80s. And a lot of that was to do with the pull up of commodities in general, particularly the spikes that we saw in, in natural gas and in coal as well. And in the backdrop to all of this is that the the OPEC plus group has been increasing production um, steadily in recent months. There's been pressure on them to produce more uh, and so far they've resisted it.
0: So let's break it down. Firstly, what's happening on the demand side? What's the outlook for that?
3: Well, demand at the moment is extremely strong. We've got a bit of a boost from fuel switching because the gas price in particular is so high there's maybe a half a million barrels a day of extra demand from switching from gas to oil. But even beyond that, the underlying demand picture is really fairly strong. And we're now looking for demand probably next year to be all the way back to where it was in 2019. And that's still with a lot to come back on the jet fuel side.
0: And then on the other side of the equation is supply, where from your report, it sounds like there are quite a lot of constraints.
3: Well, I think the, the, the one of the big questions with higher prices is what reacts to those higher prices. And outside of the OPEC group, uh, the, the most reactive is is US tight oil or shale. And that's something like 12% of world production. It is starting to show some growth now. Um, Activity in the States has come back with the higher oil price, but yes, it is being hampered to some degree by manpower and other constraints. Nevertheless, we see US growth of something like a million barrels per day next year. Beyond that, outside of OPEC, though, a little bit of a bounce next year, but the longer term picture for other non-OPEC supply we think is flat to down.
0: And so if we put these two parts of the oil price equation together, what's your outlook in the next couple of years?
3: If we look at the reasons oil prices have recovered, I, I would say, look, demand has recovered quite obviously, but the big factor has been that OPEC cuts nearly 10 million barrels per day off supply last year. Their attitude towards bringing those cuts, bringing that supply back online, being massively conservative ever since mid last year, and it stays conservative. Now, those cuts are unwinding. Uh, there will still be a little bit less than 4 million barrels a day of cuts by the end of this year. And there's room for some of that to be unwound next year, but because of that growth in US supply, we don't think all of it will be unwound. But I think there's a bigger issue than that. And that is, as those cuts are unwound, I think it'll become more and more visible, that spare capacity globally is becoming very limited. Um, And certainly on our estimates, we think global spare capacity could be as low as 3 million barrels a day, maybe even less, by the end of next year. And historically, that's a pretty low number. And it's a pretty concentrated number within just a very, very few countries. So we think the the outlook overall for the oil market is one of reasonable tightness in the medium term. And is that because of underinvestment by the industry? I think to a large degree, it is. You know, we're we're seeing even within the OPEC Plus group, we have several countries like Nigeria, Angola, who can't produce at their allocations, even after the cuts. And this is because declines in capacity have hit them. Um, but at the global level, yes, we saw something like a 45% drop off in upstream investment um, relative to the earlier of the last decade as we went into 2020. We've seen a little bit of a pickup now, but investment is still lagging. Um, and I think that investment is affecting not just OPEC members, non-OPEC members as well. Um, and so that, thats I think, is driving what will be something of a scarcity of capacity, which will emerge next year, potentially.
1: Gordon, thank you very much. Thank you. We finish this week with a look at the bond markets, where recent central bank actions have had an unusual effect on yield curves. Steve Major, Global Head of Fixed Income Research, joins us now to explain. So, Steve, there's been a lot of activity from central banks recently. Are there any common strands to their thinking?
4: Well, I think most of it is consistent with the idea that if and when rates go up, they don't go up very much. And that's speaking to the the lower for longer theme. I mean, central banks haven't been saying that exactly, but it's their their actions as much as their words that matter here. And we're talking about what's happened in Australia, the UK, Eurozone and US, all within a few weeks of each other. One of the things
1: we've seen in the bond market this year is a flattening of the yield curve, But the unusual thing is that the short end has risen while the long end has come down. What do you think is behind that?
4: Yeah, the flattening has been a general trend now through most of the year. But what's happened in the last few weeks is very unusual. It's a hard form decoupling whereby yields in the short end, say, for example, the two year have gone up and yields on the 30 year have gone down, whilst in the middle, they've moved very little. That's a seesawing effect, and and I, I think it comes from some de-anchoring going on in places like Australia with the, the failure to defend the yield curve target, and then the hawkish rhetoric that you've seen in places like the UK that subsequently wasn't uh, followed through on, and, and other regular speeches from the ECB and, and the Fed. And you're expecting this trend to reverse? Well, I think it sets up an opportunity and it could be something that starts to work soon or it could take a while, but we're not worried about being too early, better too early than too late on on this. Uh, The curve is uh, significantly flat, so I'm talking about the historical data here and it's shown by the forwards, so I'm talking about the 10 to the 30-year curve Measured uh, in forward terms, so that's something that investors will be noticing. The other thing is the drivers of the curve are, are going to be what's happening with short rates, which are linked to inflation expectations. If we're right and inflation expectations are peaking, then we'll see some easing pressure at the front end, and that will feed through into a generally steeper curve. So it's it's a big theme going into next year.
1: Is this just relevant for the U.S. curve, or is it broader than that?
4: No, I think it applies everywhere. The US is the biggest and most liquid market. So that's the one we're looking at. We've seen clear evidence of read-across from one to another. There have been days when Australia has been driving global fixed income, and even the UK quite recently, when it's surprised by not hiking rates, which surprised many people at least. So it's a a global read-across, but the US is the biggest and most liquid fixed income uh, government market. Finally, Steve, where could you be wrong? Well, yes. So if we just go back to the big theme of whether the curve's going to steepen or not, I've already mentioned the timing is one that we could be too early by months on this. But then again, I think the forwards are quite a strong indication. The, the, The main risk is that the central banks, like, for example, the Fed especially, abandon their flexible average inflation targeting which, which I think is very unlikely and it's not our call but if they did then they would validate the hawkishness that's been appearing at the front end of the curve and, and even more and the curve would flatten even more than it has done already in a way that would be counter to our view.
1: Steve thanks very much for explaining that to us. Thank you Chris. So that's all from us today. Thank you to Chu Hongbin, Gordon Gray, and Steve Major for joining us. From all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.
0: Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.